Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. The title of the book, Befriending Aliens, and the author is Norma Druid, and Norma joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Norma. Great to have you with us. Uh, what a journey. Uh, my goodness, this, this science fiction epic is loaded with all kinds of characters and an incredible new twist of uh, plot that everyone's going to love. Let me read a little bit what you say about your book. You say, this is the story of a 10-year-old boy who knows the terrible truth about the tragedy that killed his parents. No one wants to hear this truth, so he turns for help to the aliens he has befriended. And also you say, this book focuses on the emotions of individuals of varying background confronting a final challenge. Well, we're talking about a 20-year span, and of course, across the whole universe, there's a ton of characters in this, and a real fun read. Uh, Norma, how'd you get hooked on science fiction? It, it was my son, who, who of course uh, grew up in the Star Trek, uh, Doctor Who, uh, Star Wars, uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and he read some of it to me. And of course, uh, I watched some with him, and we talked about it a lot. And I realized that science fiction would provide me with the platform I needed to talk about a lot of things I want to talk about. And also, I think I could do it more thoroughly and more realistically than a lot of, well, especially the people who have to write for the vagaries of television. Right. Well, we'll find out about some of what you really want to talk about through your fiction in a little bit here. But first of all, how did you develop your universe? Well, I worked in the insurance industry for 40 years. This means I learned a whole lot about all different kinds of businesses and also being politically aware I learned a lot about how the world really works. And it always irritated me uh, with sci-fi things, especially in movies, make it too simple because you can't, you can't cram a wor world into 45 minutes plus advertising. <laughs> it's a whole lot more complex. Yes, that's the idea. So these aliens, now where are they from? They are from, they are actually um, on the outskirts of a new galaxy the humans have found, having outnumbered Earth, which people can believe. But they live in the colder planets, the planets further away from the suns. So they are not direct competitors but they are around, they are all around them, and they are tough characters as people who um, can live in very, very cold, tough environments would be tough. And what's their name? I call them Varangians. And they want to learn about humans. Why do they want to learn about humans? Are they aggressive or do they want to take us over? No. Matter of fact, they couldn't live on the planets the humans took over. That's, that's why they were vacant. Well, but the humans are right there in the middle of their space. You know, the, the Rwandans, it's like they, they have the outermost planets of the galaxy. And the humans are, you know, 
right in the middle of their sandwich. So they naturally, they want to know, for one thing, they'd never seen any other sentient beings in themselves and their serfs. And they want to know, you know, who these people are, what they are likely to do. Uh, that's, uh, that's the main thing, originally. Why a 10-year-old boy as one of the main characters? Because, uh, well, it, well, a 10-year-old boy ha has appeal, but uh, I have been struck by the things that uh, young kids can actually survive and do and, and know. They, uh, they do know more than adults give them credit for. And actually, I, I was looking both um, at personal experience. Um, my son was around that age when, I, when we had a catastrophic divorce. And also, I was looking back to the experience of Rudyard Kipling, which he wrote about as an adult, how he was thrown into a completely new and hostile situation as a young child and how he reacted to it. What is the outlaw zone? That, I figure, is, that's something that is really necessary, I think. Now, I drew the idea originally from um, the old one-time Boston combat zone, mm -hmm. you know, where prostitution and such was allowed. Mm-hmm. But it occurred to me that if you find a new galaxy and you want to settle it, it would be a good thing, you know, you don't want your crime just taking over the whole place, which could happen very easily. So the guys who, you know, like to take part in mafias, triads, kongs, that kind of thing, just get them all together and give them the segment of planets that are nearest the aliens. And, you know, let them go. Okay, you can, do, you can run these things your way, but we'll prosecute, kill, etc. if you try it in our area. And in the meantime, you can be a buffer for us against these aliens. Interesting concept. Yeah, throw them all together. Let them, uh, I guess, conspire to uh, prey on other aliens that may be hostile. Uh, they can prey on aliens. Or, of course, I, ha I have it where the people in the regular league territory can naturally go visit these planets. You know, it, it is... Um, it is a tourist impulse. They just have to have, um, you know, lots of controlling laws about what can and can't be brought back and this kind of thing. Do you have some strong feelings about religion? Is that why it's in here? Uh, yes. Well, well hey, I'm from the South. <laughs> this is the buckle of the Bible belt. But, I have observed enough of religion and been involved enough. If you read the newspapers, I think you can come to this conclusion. If we discovered another bunch of planets, the first thing some of these guys would want to do would be to have their own planet with nothing but them and nobody who disagreed with them, even in the slightest. Maybe there'd be peace in the world, right? Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not thinking that it, that it, would, it would go that far, but, you know, if you um, give these groups that are so determined on their own religious things and so intolerant, just, uh, you know, have them off in their own areas. So it's called the elect empire. Right, right, because, you know, they all think they're the elect, mm -hmm. no, no matter what. Yeah, they're the only ones that are going to get to heaven. Right, right. And now they do have, there's a little bleed over, they do have um, 
the more mo what you would call religious moderates who are among regular human people uh, and do their religion, but not to, um, uh, but they're tolerant and, and willing to work with other people. So there, there are a few ties back and forth, but uh, not many people really want to join the hardliners. And also, as you've kind of alluded to already, all your dealings with corporations throughout your career, uh, one of the themes of big corporate corruption. Oh, yes. Well, that's timely and can be addressed better through science fiction because people will uh, listen without getting scared. So what would you say makes your makes this science fiction so different? Uh, I try to, it's multifaceted. I, I try to include all of the areas of like you'll notice, I have I have uh, religion, corporate corruption. I have uh, personal interactions. I've got music and all this kind of thing. I, you know, because the world contains all of them, and you can't have a really full picture without all of them. And of course, human greed, thoughtlessness. Uh... Right, and of course, aliens. Uh, I cannot conceive of a uh, an intelligent creature that would not have some of these things. They would just go about it differently. So, what what main political theme is there throughout the the novel? Well, I, I think the main political theme really is that. Uh, you need a united structure, especially if you have, you know, you have all of these planets with people on them, and they need uh, protection. They need to work together. You know, a, a strong union is um, is the best idea. And of course, that's that's why I developed the fleet as being. Uh, an arm of this because they're mobile and they get around and help people. What's this young boy's name? Licinio. And what, who would you say is his uh, greatest ally that is so important to him throughout the book? His greatest ally is, of course, the, the girl on the cover, the alien Kamala. Uh, she, they are pen pals. You know, this is one of their ideas. The ideas for getting, uh, getting to know aliens and humans. Okay, let's let's let our children talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And they and the accidental allies that nobody thought about. I love the Felidae. I think they're wonderful. Uh, links between humans and animals. So how would you describe what they look like? Well, extra big, uh, extra big lions and tigers, except for having paws with opposable thumbs and full intelligence with ability to speak, even to speak human once they... Uh, get exposed to humans. And of course they are um, they are advocates for um, better animal treatment. You know, when the humans come up and they you know, they go out a little bit from their own area to find out and they find out, hey, these these people have animals we can talk to, but they're treating them bad. We just have a little time left, Norma. Tell us about the uh, the bad guys, you know, the adversaries. Well, the adversaries, I, I honestly do not believe in your strong, you know, supermind 
criminal. These are just, uh, just really, they are just uh, very greedy people and aliens uh, who uh, will go to any length to make a buck, and they manage to um, corrupt a very good but weak person who is in a position to help them. So, you know, it's really an alliance. In a, well, it's the bad guys from the aliens and the humans getting together in um, vice, really, and all of the corruption that that can cause. Sounds like standard international business today. <laughs> well, it, it is, sort of, and you, you get... Um, like, uh, for instance, I, my, my character that's the duke that's involved in most of this, he actually meant to be a very good man. It just he had a weakness, and he was willing to, um, you know, look at the bright side, turn the other way, and uh, not notice something so that he could pursue his hobby. You know, he's not irredeemably bad. The title of the book, Befriending Aliens, and the author is Norma Druid. Norma, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's, it is now on the Ex Libris site and the Barnes & Noble site and the Amazon site. And I hope to see it some other places soon, but those places you can sure get it. Well, thank you so much, Norma, for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you. Glad to be here. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you ever wondered why America is facing such a health care crisis? Then join us for Dr. Peter DeVette Live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. He'll answer your health care and medical questions and share with you his knowledge and opinions on topics ranging from holistic health care to spirituality and wellness. You'll find out about the roots of your health care challenges versus symptom management, the holistic approach, how the spirit, mind, and body connection is critical in both the development of illness and the solution to illness, how emotions are directly related to physical illness, and how to read your body like a book. Dr. DeVette will also go through your personal questions and how you can navigate through the illness maze. Supplements, medications, therapies, treatment options, surgeries, all kinds of things related to your health. Dr. Peter DeVent live every weekday at 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. We often ask, is that all there is? Why is this happening to me? Why am I always broke? How am I going to survive this mess? Then join Dr. Geraldine Tegeloff for Nature Spirits Speak, 7 p.m. Tuesday evenings on toginet.com. Geraldine is a metaphysician, nature intuitive, and prosperity coach who shares with you how she went from totally broke to living what she would call her perfectly prosperous life. Through the combination of a wealth of metaphysical knowledge and her amazing ability as an intuitive, Geraldine brings to you the secrets of her magical journey of healing emotionally, spiritually, and financially. As with the ancient seers and master teachers, Geraldine has a unique gift of being able to connect to the simple yet profound messages brought to us by Mother Nature, and happily shares these through today's note to self on her webpage, naturespiritspeak.com. If you need help with your journey, why not connect with Geraldine during her show, Nature Spirit Speak, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Affirmation Principle, How Effective Leaders Bring Out the Best in People. And the author is Bernard M. Curtis. And Dr. Curtis joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Bernard. Good morning. Great to have How you. Are you well, it's great to have you with us. I'm doing great, and I know that I'm even going to be greater because you're going to be the teacher here. You're, we're going to learn a lot about how to get the best from your people in a business setting. Let me read what you've written about this. This book will give you a different perspective 
on how to get the best from your people by strengthening your relationship with them and demanding excellence. This is about valuing people and affirming them, and at the same time setting high standards and expectations and holding everyone accountable, especially yourself. Well, all we have to do to that is say amen. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds a tall order, I know, but... It's very doable. Well, I'm sure it is. It's like we've been talking about before we started recording. Uh, it's uh, looking through a different window, that new paradigm, but people can do it, and and they just need to learn these principles that you have in your book. Well, first of all, before we get into talking about these principles, Bernard, tell us about yourself, your background, educational background, professional background, and why you decided to write this book. Well, Steve, um, my professional background is that I spent 31 years in corporate uh, management in both line organizations and in staff organizations and have a lot of experience working with both union and non-union in different industries. And uh, so after spending that much time in corporate America, part of which was, of course, in training and development and my background, as far as the leadership development, I spent the last 25 years uh, developing organizational leaders, <clears throat> both uh, internal in companies and as a consultant uh, to companies. And um, my background, my educational background, is that I have a bachelor's degree in political science and a master's degree in human resources, management, and development, and I have my doctorate in organizational leadership from Pepperdine University, and uh, I've used that to make the to make the best of what I could do for for organizational leaders and for organizations. So that's a little bit of that's a, that's a little bit of my educational background. Wanted to um, just expand on that and take it to the next level in terms of consulting and working with leaders and helping them grow and develop, and that's really what I've been able to do with that education. So that that's really my professional background and my education background and how it led me to do that. I had decided uh, many years ago that I wanted to move from line management and human resources to actually working with organizations and their leadership because I could see what some of the problems were in developing leaders and their perspective and how they were not really able to get the performance they wanted out of their people and they didn't know why. And, you know, like we were saying before, it's not really rocket science or brain surgery that your people are the ones that produce. So those are the people that you should be working with and building relationships with and having a, a, a kind of a relationship that is respectful both ways and that there are high, excuse me, high standards set for both you and them. So that's a little bit of my background and basically how I moved to leadership development and helping organizations with uh, developing their leaders. We spend a lot of time selecting just the right person for the job, and then afterwards, sometimes we don't really strengthen that relationship. We just kind of get busy, and yet, as you point out, the more important thing here is to learn how to care for the human spirit. Now, explain that. That's a, that's uh, quite a ideal here. That's a lofty ideal. It, it is a lofty ideal. I, one of the problems that many organizational leaders have is that they look at leadership as a function or a role that they have, and they don't realize that when it comes to leadership, you, it's not just a matter of taking a person, a, a warm body, Um, giving them some skills and having them do the job, when you bring a person into the organization, you're bringing not only their their physical body, you're bringing their spirit to work. And when they come in, they're bringing their whole person. So when I talk about the human spirit, I talk about leaders are actually leading the human spirit. And people say, oh, okay, you're getting the spirituality stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how a person feels, how they think, their belief systems, the personal values, their their ethics, the morality, you bring all that, they're bringing all that to work. 
And when you're leading them, you're leading their whole human spirit. So when you see people who are not performing the job, something is wrong deep down inside. It may be something personal to them. It may be the relationship with their boss. It may be how they feel about the organization. But a lot goes on there. And so when I talk about the human spirit, I'm, I'm saying recognize, leaders should recognize that they are actually leading individual human spirits. When they have somebody, for example, who they want to improve their work and they challenge the person and they are they start pushing the person and they're harassing the person and they're 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 pumping them for more work at some point the the human spirit is going to break and when that breaks you don't get the performance that you want and also organizations are looking for people to give more and more and more which they can do people are willing to do that if you take care of the human spirit they are willing to give I've had many experiences when I was in line management where I had people reporting to me, both union and non-union, and they would step up, to, step up to the plate and give their best and give me more of their work and give me more of themselves because they knew that when they had an issue or a problem, that I would help them take care of that issue or problem. And so I would give to them and they would, they would give to me. And that's what I call a reciprocity of engagement in the book. It's a mutual give and take. And so they know I would take care of them, so they would always take care of me. And so it's a matter of leading the human spirit. I would like managers and leaders and organizations to start thinking that way, that, you know, this is not just some warm bodies that we're bringing into the organization. We're bringing individual human spirits, and that's what, that's what we're leading. We're leading human spirits here, and that's what we need to do when, we, when we're thinking about our people and we're thinking about how to, how to take care of them, how to embrace them, and how to get the best out of them. Well, you talk about affirming people in the workplace. Now, when you affirm someone, you have to see that person as very valuable. You have to, you know, you really have to value people in general, what they can bring to the company. Obviously, the people are, are buying into uh, being there. I mean, they have been hired. They've agreed to be hired. Now, they're still expecting things, aren't they? They are expecting things. When you, when people are hired into your organization, they are expecting that you will treat them fairly with respect and dignity and that you're going to be just in things that you do, everything that you do. And you may say, well, Bernard, how, how is it possible? Why would they expect that? Well, when you think about it, each of us, when we come to work for an organization, we're not expecting the organization to demean us. That's not why we came to work. That's not what we decided to hire on. We don't expect the organization to be unfair or unjust or disrespectful. We don't expect to hire in and have a boss treat us that way. That is not the expectation. And when people come in and they find out that the organization is not what they thought it was, they start looking for another place to go. And this, this idea about affirmation does not mean that uh, everybody is going to uh, get, get everything they want. It's, affirming people is not about giving them everything they want. It's about giving them everything they need to be a valuable asset to the organization. And part of what they need is for you as a leader to respect them and honor them and affirm them. If a person is not performing the expectations, I mentioned in the book, if, a, if they're not performing the expectations, then it is imperative upon the leader to help them seek success elsewhere. This affirmation principle is not about keeping everybody and treating everybody nice. It's about doing what is right and honoring the person. And part of honoring people is to let them know when they're not performing and this is not the best job for you or the best company for you. And it might be time for you to seek success elsewhere. So moving people along is part of affirming them. And that's important. That's important part of it, too. But the relationship between leader and follower is critical in the organization. That's another thing I talk about is that this this relationship is the most important relationship in the workplace, no matter what level you are. And I talk about affirming people in the way that um, makes them feel good about what they're doing. And I know that they're in business and other organizations, there are leaders who consider themselves tough leaders, right? Tough right, leaders. Right. When you think about it, tough leaders, Steve, still want to be affirmed. I mean, the, 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 the tough guy still wants his boss to see him as great. Mm-hmm. He wants his boss to give him some perks. He wants his boss to give him raises. He wants his boss to give him opportunity. He wants him, his boss to promote him. So these so-called tough people, they want to be affirmed too. And that just goes to show you our human nature. We want, we want the pat on the back. 
we really do want the pat on the back. So I encourage leaders to start kind of looking at their people a little bit differently in terms of uh, what they can do to build a relationship. In the book, I talk about building relationships, and I give a lot of uh, strategies for building relationships, and that's really important because that is the key and the foundation for getting the best out of your people is building those relationships. I have managers that, that I've consulted with that will say, well, Bernard says, uh, I don't really want to have a relationship with these people. I just want them to come to work and do their job. And I say to them, you know what, the, the reality is that if you're going to spend eight to ten hours a day with somebody, five to six days a week, you have a relationship whether you want one or not. And you can, make, you can make the relationship pay off or you can make that relationship one where you're not able to even get what you need from the people because of the attitude that you bring to the job and dishonoring their human spirit. So it's not a matter of I don't want a relationship with them. You have a relationship with them, and it's up to you to develop and nurture that relationship. Well, it's building trust. That's the bottom line. That's what all this is doing, as you point out. That's exactly right. It's building trust, and trust is, is one of those real fragile things where, as I mentioned, you can, you, it takes a while to build up trust with people, but you can destroy it in a heartbeat. And so you're absolutely right. It's about building trust. That is one of the key foundational uh, practices that, that leaders can do is to, is to build trust with their people. A lot of times, though, that I find that organizational leaders really don't know how to go about doing that. So in the book, I provide some what I call trust-building strategies because they're not aware of the things they need to do to build trust. And one of the first things that leaders have to do is challenge their thinking because you're not going to build trust with people if you don't see them as valuable and worthy of trust. So I challenge leaders to start thinking about their thinking, as I call it in the book, and challenging their beliefs and attitudes about people because that's the only way you're going to start to build trust. You've got to start there. You can't start with just some kind of new leadership technique. Building trust is not about a technique. Building trust really is about connecting with people. And so when I talk about those trust-building strategies, I provide leaders with some tools where they can actually take those tools and begin to do that. But they need to understand they've got to start with looking at themselves and how do they see their people. Do they see their people as deserving trust? Uh, do they see their people as valuable? Do they see their people as humans and want to affirm them as humans? And once you start doing that, you will find out that people will start to trust you as a leader because they know that no matter what happens, you're going to be fair and you're going to be just and you're going to keep your word and you're going to, you're going to support your people and you're going to back them up. So that's really what it's all about. So the leaders should understand that building trust is not a technique. It's a way of being. Well, it's the bottom line, obviously, is so important. But if we only focus there, we'll miss this whole concept that I hear you talking about, this feelings concept, because as we all know, and we all kind of look to sports, I mean, we all talk about so much about these issues in a, in a sports team, whether well, they're the same principles in business. Yeah, same principles in business. And we use a lot of sports metaphors in our, in our culture, uh, but I think what happens is many times we don't understand what the underpinnings of those, those sports metaphors are. We use the examples, you know, uh, we're all on the same team and teamwork, 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 got to do this, got to do that. We support each other. And you hear, hear uh, coaches and team members talking on television about the team and how the, the for example, the, you know, the, the running back says, you know, it wasn't for my uh, offensive line, you know, I, uh, I couldn't have done this. And they give credit where credit is due. And but I think what happens is that a lot of time in business, we use those sports examples and metaphors, but we don't understand necessarily the principles behind them. Yeah. That's, I think that's the key. So, it's, just yeah. a, it's just a bunch of words, and we don't understand. Again, it's down at the feeling level, like you've, been so, you've so well stated and explained. Everything is at the feeling level, at the spirit level. Exactly, ex that's exactly right. So you hit the nail on the head. It's at the feeling level and the spirit level. And people say, well, in business, we don't really deal with feelings. We deal with yeah. facts. Well, yeah. the reality is, yeah, you do deal with feelings. Every person that comes to that door has a feeling about a whole lot of things, about the boss, about the company, about the work, about the customers, about the vendors, the suppliers, the investors. They have feelings about everything. And so that's where I'm talking about the human spirit. They got feelings about everything, and they have feelings about you as, the, as, their, as their boss. And how they feel about you as, your, as their boss is going to make a difference. 
And they also, they also are going to have a feeling about how you feel about them. They're going to have a feeling about that. So that's going to impact the relationship with you. It's going to impact what they give to the organization, how much commitment and loyalty and engagement that they have with the organization. It's going to make a difference. So you're right. It's at the feeling level. And I want managers to just start thinking about it. It's not the whole thing, but it's a huge part of getting the best out of your people. We've been listening to Dr. Bernard M. Curtis. He is the author of his book, The Affirmation Principle, How Effective Leaders Bring Out the Best in People. Bernard, tell us how to get your book. You can get the book on Amazon.com. You can get it at BarnesandNoble.com. Or you can get it uh, by going to my website, which is H as in Harry, D as in David, strategies.com. And that's for human development strategies, hdstrategies.com. Any of those um, avenues will get you the book. And I hope that people uh, take it to heart and start thinking about it, leadership a little bit differently. Well, thanks so much for being with us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you, Steve. And I really appreciate your time. And um, good leadership to you, man. Thank you. Libris returns after these short messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for you to be a rock star. Get ready to rock with Rock Talk and Craig Deswalt. And learn how to achieve rock star status in your industry every Tuesday afternoon at 2, 1 central on Toginet.com. Craig Deswald is the creator of the Rockstar System for Success. Craig will share easy tips and strategies on how entrepreneurs and businesses can use outside-the-box marketing strategies to stand out from their competition. Each high-energy show will feature interviews with celebrity rock stars as well as business rock stars. For more on Craig, the show, and the Rockstar Marketing Boot Camps, check out the website, CraigDuswalt.com, so you can learn how to be perceived as an expert and celebrity in your field, so more people come to you to buy your services and products. Then, get ready to be a rock star with Rock Talk and Craig Duswalt, Tuesday afternoons at 2, 1 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Long Game, This Murder Mystery, is authored by Gray McCoy. And Gray joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Gray. Hi. Great to have you with us. We're going to talk about Nick Drexler. Uh, he got framed for a murder he did not commit what an interesting, twisting murder mystery. Well, why don't, before we get into some of the details, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Gray, and, and how all this comes about. You're, you've got a lot of plots running through your mind. Well, there's not much to tell. I'm a Georgia boy. I was born in Atlanta, and I lived in the metro Atlanta all my life, except for a three-year term in the military service. Uh, I was in a poor family, and when I got out, I had to, well, after I resolved my, uh, the draft was hanging over all of the young boys, and I wanted to get it out of the way. After that, I went to night college for seven years and earned two degrees. And um, my goal in those years, although I wanted for, to write for novels, uh, my goal, top priority, was getting out of poverty. And so... I was hoping at some point in time I would be able to have 
a lot of time to write novels, but that didn't occur, so I had to write for my retirement. So when I retired, I started writing, and, and this is my first murder mystery. But it's not your first book. It's not my first book. So tell us about Nick Drexler. Uh, how did you come up with this character? For one thing, I had to make it a... Uh, the book is dedicated to my daughter, and she's always liked these mobster stories. So I had to make him as a uh, heir apparent to a mobster family. Uh, uh, over His uh, ancestors for several generations were... Uh, mobsters who were more or less the leader of a large decentralized gang, with in, mostly in the south, but uh, really on most of the eastern uh, side of the country. And he's uh, uh, more or less thought to be the the, the leader, but he really isn't. Uh, he's he an honest guy, him. isn't he? He's an honest guy. Yeah, he's he's honest, and he he decided that he wasn't going to have anything to do with it. But everybody thinks he is, and the reason is because his family, his closest members, uh, did the fiction. They, when word came up about the wanting um, his decision on a matter between two rival gangs over territory, well, they would say they referred it to him, and this was his decision. And if there was any money priced, uh, they got it. He didn't know anything about it. And they said, don't contact him because the police uh, tapped his telephones and things like that. So all, all in all, he really didn't know what was going on. And that really led to his being, uh, partly led to his being framed. So what happens to him when he's framed? Well, he serves two years in prison, but his case is thrown out by an appellate court. When he gets out, he has to worry about not only trying to prove his innocence, but his two businesses that he had went belly up. And he has to find financing uh, to get those business where he can make a living. Now, he's um, been very successful in the business world. Uh, he, had, really, he has substantial money in equity of his mansion, and that's it. And he uses that money to get a private detective to help him. Uh, he is a little hurt in the beginning by two women. Uh, one of them is the best friend of the woman that was murdered. Uh, who's, uh, she's a national correspondent, and she's threatened to put him back where he belongs in, on death row. And the other woman is his niece and former ward, who hates him uh, since from, from the beginning. And uh, they, he has to ward them off and try to get their favor trying to get them on his side. And about halfway, he's kidnapped, and, and through that kidnapping, uh, it turned out all right, although it was almost got killed. Uh, he would learn, begins to learn what the, what was, how he got framed, uh, the, some of the reasons. So for the second half of the book, he starts learning bit by bit. And toward the end, he learns who the ringleader is. But I can't tell you too much about the details because it would... Uh, sure. No, <laughs> definitely. You don't want to give away everything. Now, why does the story begin in 1991? Well, that's a key point. It's uh, about the Iraqi war. And it picks... It's, there's just two chapters in 1991. And it picks up 15 years later when he gets out of prison. And it, it relates to... Uh, Who's involved in 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 the in the background um, about the the murders and the frame? Now, who would you say some of the main characters around him, his uh, friends, his allies? Who would be another main or key character to your story? Well, actually, it's the two women. <laughs> uh, what are their names? Uh, that's uh, Erin Carlisle is his niece, and uh, uh, she she's always been antagonistic toward him, and uh, she thinks he didn't do enough to try to find out what happened to her mother and her stepfather's death. And the other one is a uh, the the female Valerie Keys. Uh, that she's the uh, 
the report of his trying to get him um, get him sent back to death uh, death row. So she's kind of a she uh, she one of the good guys, uh, good gals in the book, or is she part of the the mob? Well, no, actually, uh, they're antagonistic in the beginning, in the first type of book. Ah. And sort of in the life type of book, they turn in his favor. They so, see that he's not really the one that uh, did the murder. Who are his enemies? Who's the key person there? Well, that's sort of like telling what the plot is about. But uh, let's just say there's a a group of people, and uh, it goes way back as much as the to the World War Two <laughs> and the First Iraqi War. It's a long, it's a long drawn out. Uh, it's a re- it's a revenge plot. Ah, and, okay. And that's the that's the uh, the rub. And see, uh, all this time, Nick uh, Nick doesn't realize what he's in for until toward the end. Now, who are these two young girls that are held hostage for ransom that he's trying to rescue? Well, that's the, I think, the most interesting part of the whole movie. Uh, Nick is kidnapped by the Houston mob on the West Coast. And he's sent over there because two of his distant relatives uh, barred a hideout from the mob boss over in Houston. And uh, they didn't tell him they were going to use that to kidnap, to put two kidnapped young girls. And uh, what they do is uh, try to get the ransom money paid, but they ended in a shootout and they killed the police. And 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 so they wanted to. Uh, uh, the the mob boss is a little worried that it might spill over since it was his hideout, and he had. Nick kidnapped and brought over there, thinking that he was, since he was a kingpin, not knowing that he wasn't really making any decision, that he was, since he was a kingpin, he was the only man that could get the two out peacefully. He didn't want to start a war. So Nick tried to get out of it, but uh, since he didn't have any choice, uh, he called him by phone and, and uh, negotiated a cash deal. And when he went there, under guard uh, up to about a mile and then he drove the last mile himself he um, meets the two guys, gives them some cash and then goes down to the basement where he passes two dead bodies of the mobsters men who sit there to try to get the earlier and they were both killed and the two girls are tied to chairs so he he, un- and he takes their bonds off and puts the blindfolds on them and starts them up the steps. And when he gets up to the steps, uh, to the first floor of the living room, he's worrying about that life. The two men have their guns right on him, and they said that they decided to change the plan that he can go once they see what he looks like. He's in a, he has a mask. But the girls, he's got, they're going to have to blow them away. And he has a problem there whether to either try to rescue the girls or save his own self and then walk out. And it ends in a very bad confrontation. And I don't want to say any more at this point. Sure, sure. Sounds, you know, like all the great ingredients of a murder mystery and real a great original plot. It's real different. Well, thank you. Now, you also kind of want to take the high road. You're not into graphic sex or the F-bomb or even poop jokes, as you say. Why did you decide to write it that way? Well, when I was young, I enjoyed the works of Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, and other writers. I guess when the baby boomers come along, uh, things started changing, (laughs) not only in books, but movies and television, mainly movies. And I just wanted somebody that wanted, I, I was trying to think of adults like two, like like a man or a woman who took a long airplane trip 
and they wanted to do something for several hours. It would be just escapist fare. Uh, for a couple of young boy or girl in their teens or early 20s who like to read. Uh, it's, this book is obviously isn't for what I would say people who like these uh, iPads or uh, smartphones who, who play games all the time and don't read. It's just for readers, and it's just for the type that want the old-fashioned murder mystery, a good mystery but without all of it. It does have some mild profanity for realism purposes, and there is some murders because it is about a mob and uh, gangsters and such. Uh, but overall, I think it books, the book could be placed in a uh, a, li- uh, a school library. It's, it's one of the old, like, like it used to get. Uh, one other thing is, is it doesn't have uh, any moral underlying moralizing tale. <laughs> I refrain from that. I took a cheap shot. Well, it wasn't cheap against the baby boomers, but uh, since I think they uh, changed things, but uh, there's no, there's no, you, you, I'm not trying to, oh, trying to do anything more, say moralizing tale or in any way. It's just a, it's just a murder mystery. It's just an entertaining. Well, and the title is The Long Game. Gray McCoy is the author. Gray, tell us how to get your book. Well, right now it's with the Exlibris, but uh, I'm hoping to get it in Amazon uh, this weekend. Very good. I'm sure folks can order it uh, on any of these online retailers, book retailers, or going to a store and order it. It will be there. They will uh, order it for you. So, Gray, thank you so much for being with us on Exlibris On Air. Well, it was a pleasure, and thank you. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.